This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, we have good news and some bad on the COVID front, and that is actual progress. After a year in which, other than the vaccine, the news was pretty much bad all the time. We are joined again by Dr. Mel Herbert, whose years as an emergency room physician and teaching at UCLA has given him the experience to deal with this, and whose service, MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, has emergency department physicians everywhere sharing their knowledge and experience. And Mel... Just to bask in it for a bit, let's start with some good news. There was fear when we first started talking about this a year ago that the winter could be disastrous because of the double whammy of COVID and flu. And we knew this flu season would be light because Australia, which has its winter first, had a light one. But instead of light, I mean, flu has been almost non-existent. Was that because of all the precautions we took over COVID or just plain dumb luck, dumb luck with a weak flu this year? Well, we uh, we think actually that it's because of all the mask wearing and the physical distancing and the flu is not as infectious as COVID. So it's significantly, not even significantly, it dramatically dropped the amount of flu that we had this season. You know, in some of the hospitals uh, where I work, I've talked to some of the infectious disease people there. They've seen essentially zero flu. And just as you said, this happened in Australia as well. So it turns out that uh, masking and physical distancing works to reduce infectious viruses. Um, now, COVID, of course is more infectious than flu. So although we've seen dramatic reductions um, in COVID in the recent weeks, it's still out there and it's still very infectious and we still need to keep going with what we've been doing. But I wonder if, especially for our older population, which really got hit hard by this and other people who have you know, problems that seem to help them get sicker, people who are diabetic, people who are obese and on and on, people not their fault. In fact, it's good news. They're over 75. If there's anything we can learn here for future flu seasons. Yeah, I think particularly if we're having a, um, a bad flu season or we're concerned about the, how bad the strain itself is, 
we need to move sort of more to what many Asian countries do, and it becomes just part of the culture that during flu season, or if you're uh, sick at all, or if you're at high risk, that you wear a mask. I think um, it's shown us that this masking really works, and doing a few behavioral changes when there is a respiratory virus out there can significantly reduce the amount of spread, and that's a good thing, like you say, particularly in high-risk populations. And so uh, we need to look at those countries and those practices and see if we can sort of implement them here in the United States. Well, let's stay with this for a while because it's a long time since we've been able to harp on good news in this broadcast. The other good news, the vaccines we have seem to be remarkably effective. And finally, there's a ton more on the way. Yeah, these vaccines, this has really been an amazing story to live through as a physician and as a population. A year ago, not having a vaccine and just barely having sort of replicated the virus and knowing what the genome was to the place where we are now, where millions of people are getting vaccinated. And in the studies, the vaccines, the Pfizer, the mRNA, the Moderna in particular, the ones we've got most right now, they were in the studies 95% effective at reducing symptomatic COVID disease. They were extraordinarily effective at reducing severe disease, basically taking it to zero with zero deaths in those groups. And now we have data in the real world, a huge study out of Israel just published in the New England Journal yesterday of nearly 600,000 participants showed that in the real world, when the vaccine's being used out there in the real world, same thing again, about a 90 to 95% reduction in transmissibility of the disease. And it's even better than that because we've got other data that suggest, and this is the really big one. So we knew that these vaccines would work against severe disease and death and going to the ICU. But now we've found that it also reduces the chance that you will spread it to other people. And we've got a couple of papers that have uh, looked at that. Uh, one is from England, and it's uh, a doctor's hospital and nurses uh, study, where they looked at all the docs and they did swabs on them and showed that not only did it reduce severe disease, it reduced asymptomatic disease as well. And so that coupled with another study that said if you've been vaccinated and you get infected, the amount of virus that you're creating, that you're shedding, the viral load is really low. So we've got good news on all parts. It reduces the chance that you'll get sick, reduces the chance and remarkably that you will die. And now we have this increasing evidence that suggests that it reduces your probability of spreading it to somebody else, even if you did get infected, if you're on, if you had the vaccine. So all of this is extraordinarily good news. Okay. Since I haven't smiled this much on this broadcast in a year, uh, let me deal with one more good thing. The COVID death rates after a big swing up about five weeks ago have been trending down now for several weeks. There's even talk of herd immunity within months. So I know there's a big argument about that. And, and what's the thinking here? Well, unfortunately, there's a bit of tragedy in here as well as the good news. So certainly there has been a remarkable reduction in the amount of uh, virus that's out there. It's going down. The hospitalization rate has dropped by about 30% in the last two weeks in places like LA County, which had the worst of it. And part of this is because it's a bit warmer here in California and people are outside a bit more. Part of this is because the vaccines are starting to get out there. But unfortunately, also part of this is that it was so bad in November, December, January, early February, that some uh, very high-risk populations have been infected to the point where there's probably 80 or 90% of those people have been infected. And then they have developed herd immunity within those areas because the virus just ripped through there. And I'm thinking about lower income families that are multi-generational, that are frontline workers. They were decimated in the last uh, few months by this virus. The only good news to that is that now that that virus has slowed right down in those populations, but it's been at a terrible cost because so many of those patients got very sick and so many of them died. And I work at a hospital that 
looks after many of those patients. And I can tell you many members of extended families uh, had died or suffered you know, severely from this uh, virus. But in those hospitals now, we're seeing much, much less, even within the last few weeks. So there's good news, but it's you know, good and bad news, like much of COVID. Right. So let's deal with some of the possibly negative news here. Aside from the variant from the UK that seems to be becoming the prevalent one now in the United States and that one from South Africa, we have some homegrown varieties that are causing concern. One where you are in California, one in New York. And the New York variant is especially concerning scientists because it seems that it may, and this is still may, the papers on this haven't been peer-reviewed yet, it may get around the immune system, which might make the vaccines less effective. What do we know about these variants? Well, I think you summarized it very well. There's definitely a California variant. And we talked about this last time. Why did it blow up in California so much when it hadn't been there? And we supposed back then, I think a month or so ago, that maybe there's a strain here that we haven't sort of seen yet. And that looks like what's happened in the same thing in New York. This is going to be an ongoing story. This virus is going to continue to mutate, to change, to have variants. That's what viruses do, particularly when you've got a, you know, a lot of people infected and there's lots of virus out there. It's going to continue to move. It does appear that... Um, is getting smarter about suppressing your immune system so that you can't clear the virus as well. It does appear to be more infectious in these cases, but still we believe that uh, after two doses of the vaccines that you'll be covered. But this is why it's a race against time. We're very excited about the fact that there is so much uh, vaccine that's on the way, but uh, concerned that we're it's a race against time. We've got to get people uh, vaccinated as soon as possible so we can reduce the amount of people who have the disease so that we reduce the chance that we get a variant that is really resistant. The good news is that a little bit of vaccine resistance is okay. Our real concern is that something comes along that's very vaccine resistant. We don't have any evidence of that right now, but that's why we want to get vaccines into arms as fast as possible. Let's get rid of this thing spreading as much as possible so we give it less chance to change. Okay, let me bypass Melbert, the scientist and doctor. You're in California, which at 50,000 deaths has had more than any other state. Put a human face on this. You've been in the ER. You've seen the effect on your colleagues. What are you saying? Yeah, the human face of this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. I was at work you know, a few weeks ago, and there were three patients in one family that died in one night. And there was a woman who was 45 years old that we unfortunately watched die in the emergency department on Christmas Day. It was like 1 a.m. on Christmas Day. And that story is just told over and over and over again. And uh, this idea that it's just the 85-year-olds, it's not. These were patients that were in their 40s and 50s. It's terrible. And I watched the New York Times video, and I suggest everybody go check it out. It's, uh, they put some cameras on nurses in the ICU in New York and just showed the burden on those ICU nurses, the, the extraordinary amount of death day after day after day, and just the burden that they have, have had to deal with. This has really been a terrible time for a lot of people. And I just suggest if people want to get a feel for what that's like, go watch that video on the New York Times. It's really very moving. It's very hard to get through. And it just sort of reminds us that um, this has hurt a lot of people, even the ones that weren't infected, but those that were looking after those that were infected. Just a tragic, tragic year we've had. Dr. Mel Herbert, for years teaching emergency medicine, working in an emergency room, and uh, also who serve as MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, has emergency department physicians sharing the information that Mel passes on to us in these broadcasts. Mel, thank you, as always, and stay well, my friend. And you too, Gil, and uh, to your listeners, please stay safe. It's, uh, it's, there's lots of good news. We're almost there. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the surprises in Donald Trump's final days as president was that he did not grant himself a pardon, something that might have been legally disputed but might have protected him against any federal charges after leaving office. There was reportedly political advice that such a move might look like an admission of criminal acts that would hurt him in a 2024 presidential race. So now he faces a number of federal investigations for which a pardon might have been useful and state investigations where a pardon would have made no difference at all. But how much legal danger is he actually in? Ricky Kleeman is a criminal defense lawyer and a legal analyst for CBS News. Ricky, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Gil. And let's just start with the Supreme Court decision that allowed access for the Manhattan DA to Donald Trump's tax filings and other financial records. How big a deal is this? It's a huge deal. This was uh, the result of a subpoena that is 18 months old which Cy Vance, the district attorney for New York County, which is in Manhattan, had served upon Donald Trump's accountants and lawyers for Donald Trump's and the Trump Organization's tax records and other business records. This particular subpoena was fought by Donald Trump's attorneys up and down to the United States Supreme Court twice before we wound up with this ruling recently. So what does it mean? What it means is that a team of investigators is going to go up to the lawyers for the accountants and be able to demand, per that subpoena, the tax records going back for eight years of Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, as well as other types of business records. They're going to take those records down to 100 Center Street, to Cy Vance's district attorney's office, and you are going to have a number of people who are going to review these records to see if there is evidence of a crime. The Manhattan DA's office, Cy Vance's office, has subpoenaed New York City Property Tax Agency as part of a criminal investigation into Trump's company. The agency confirmed that last week. That suggests prosecutors are examining the former president's efforts to reduce commercial real estate taxes for possible evidence of fraud. But let me ask you whether it's that or some of the claims, though not charges, of criminal shenanigans going on in the Trump real estate empire. At, at one point, I think it was in 2017, his associate Felix Sater even said, without being specific, Trump and me are both going to prison. Aren't these kind of alleged corporate crimes usually settled with uh, financial fines rather than anybody actually going to prison? They are often settled with financial fines. However, it depends on how big a crime is found, if any is found. What Cy Vance's office is looking at is the whole arena of fraud. They're looking at bank fraud. They're looking at tax fraud. They're looking at insurance fraud. And they're also looking at the much lesser offense, which could be a misdemeanor, of falsifying business records. But as you go up the line, the value of the fraud creates the crime itself, whether it's a class a felony, B felony, C felony, and so on. And so if there is a major fraud, you are really talking about some serious prison time, including the possibility of mandatory minimum sentences. Now, while saying that, you are correct that often these cases are found to be uh, misdemeanors, they're found to be de minimis, and that they are settled by a payment. In this particular case, however, 
What we have to remember is that much of this started from the testimony of Michael Cohen before Congress when Michael Cohen said, in essence, that the Trump Organization kept two sets of books. That is, what they would do is they would inflate the value of various properties in order to obtain loans, and they would deflate the value of the same properties in order to have a more favorable tax result. Now, one of the defenses, remember there is always a defense, one of the defenses that I am sure that the Trump lawyers are going to go forward with is to say, wait a minute, everything that we did was reviewed not only by the accountants, it was reviewed by banks. So it wasn't that we were trying to play fast and loose. When the banks reviewed uh, these valuations, they had their own teams to be able to audit. So you're going to find that this is not going to be a simple investigation and prosecution. It will be a hard-fought one if, in fact, there are charges. Well, then let's talk about that, because we are talking about a billionaire who, even unlike most billionaires, can get people even of moderate means to give him more money for things like defense. Depositions, discovery, motions. I mean, how long might it be before these kinds of cases would actually end up in a courtroom? Well, one of the things that we have to remember is that you're dealing with both a criminal process uh, in the investigatory stages in Cy Vance's DA's office in New York. But just by chance, you're also dealing with a civil process, which has been started by the Attorney General of the state of New York, Letitia James. She is basically looking at the same uh, charges, but she's looking at them from a civil suit point of view. So in a civil suit, there are such things as depositions and interrogatories. There is a way to put someone like Donald Trump or other Trump family members or other officers of the company or accountants and auditors and bank people and get them under oath in a deposition. In fact, we already know that Eric Trump has testified in a deposition for Letitia James. So will that affect Cy Vance's investigation? Is it going to slow it down? My response to that is no. I think that Cy Vance is moving apace. And how do we know that? Number one is he recently associated a man by the name of Mark Pomerantz with this investigation. Mark Pomerantz is a former federal prosecutor in New York, really well thought of. He's someone whom uh, I've known, I personally respect, uh, and he is someone who has been brought in specifically on the idea of Pomerantz in interviewing witnesses. So they're looking ahead. They're not waiting. In addition, Cy Vance's office has also hired a firm called FTI, which is a large consulting company. And they're brought in because they're going to analyze these commercial real estate transactions as well as do a forensic audit of the tax investigation, of the tax returns and business records in a tax investigation. So he's moving apace. You have to remember this, too. Cy Vance has not announced that he is going to run for office again. And so how much does Cy Vance want this investigation to come to an end and be either a prosecution 
or a no prosecution by the time he leaves office. So I would say Cy Vance is moving quickly, whereas Letitia James has the leisure as the state attorney general to take these depositions. And can you imagine someone who really does not like Donald Trump and the Trump organization? They would be just absolutely rubbing their hands together with glee to be able to take depositions of Donald Trump, who is now an ordinary citizen, as well as members of the Trump family. If we're looking at criminal cases as opposed to civil cases, the Sixth Amendment, of course, guarantees a right for a criminal defendant to a jury trial, though the Supreme Court has said doesn't necessarily cover minor offenses. That said, in this polarized political atmosphere with many Americans who would defend Trump against anything and others who would send him to prison for anything, how difficult would it be to get a jury that would fairly hear a case against him? Well, I think you raise a very important point, and it's one of the points that uh, I am always looking at when I'm looking at a trial of a very popular or a very unpopular person. Uh, the easiest current example is Derek Chauvin, the police officer uh, involved in the George Floyd homicide, is going to trial supposedly in March. And so how are you going to get a fair and impartial jury for Derek Chauvin? Well, how do you get a fair and impartial jury for Donald Trump? Somehow, some way, it always seems to happen that a good judge who will take a hold of the voir dire process, that is the questioning process of jurors, in addition, of course, to the lawyers being able to ask prospective jurors questions, that you can get to an amount that is 12 people, and in a case like this, you would also have four or six alternates, who will say, I've read everything there is about Donald Trump. I've watched TV. I've been on social media. Um, but I can cast all of that aside, and I will promise you that I will follow the rules of law and the rules of evidence, and I will be able to give you a fair and impartial verdict. Um, so... Do I believe that you will be able to get a jury in that case? I believe that you will. Do we really believe that people are ultimately fair and impartial? Well, I always say when I have taught jury selection to lawyers over the years is that you're never really looking for a fair and impartial jury, even though that's what we say we're looking for. You're looking for a jury that is likely more predisposed to your side than the other side. Okay, we've got a few more questions, though, for CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman, and we will do that next on America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
and their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and I've been talking to CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman about a number of possible criminal issues facing Donald Trump. Just two more cases really quickly. The Capitol riot. As for what Trump was tried for in the second impeachment, which is a political, not a criminal thing, uh, essentially inciting the riot, there is that 1969 Supreme Court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio, which involved a Ku Klux Klan leader who spoke of violence against Americans, but it was decided in Brandenburg's favor, and it made incitement cases very difficult, unless you almost pretty much specifically said, go to the Capitol right now, break down the doors, try to hang the vice president, and like that. How difficult would be it to do a criminal incitement case against the former president? Although the public doesn't really understand this, it is a very difficult case to bring in a criminal court. Um, And I think that you have articulated the reasons why coming out of Brandenburg versus Ohio. The, The language in the case means that you have to have the conduct directed to that. You have to have the words directed to that conduct. You have to have it likely to incite the riot, and you have to mean that it will be imminent violence or lawless action. So what the government, that is the prosecutor, would have to prove here is really narrowed down in a great way to that speech on January 6th. And that speech in and of itself is what they're going to have to focus on. Whereas what the prosecutor wants to focus on is exactly what the impeachment managers focused on, which is to say you cannot just look at the speech of Donald Trump on January 6th, but you must look back at least six months to his priming the public and his followers to say that the election was fraudulent, that if he lost, it would be rigged, that once he did lose, that in fact, it was in fact a fraud, that in fact, it was rigged, according to him, and his ginning it up for the anger of his supporters. So in order to prosecute this, Merrick Garland, who will be the new attorney general of the United States, is going to have to make a decision based on prosecutorial discretion on both a political calculus, if it is wise to go forward with this case, and on a legal calculus of what are the consequences of bringing this case and winning, but what are the consequences of bringing this case and losing. And finally, we made only a... a 
a sidelong glance at the civil cases, but getting to another possible criminal case to wrap up, there's the Georgia case where the Fulton County DA is looking into the solicitation of fraud where Trump told the Georgia Secretary of State, I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. He meant one more than he would need to change the outcome in Georgia. But how dangerous a case might that be to the former president? I think that case is very dangerous, and I would keep my eye on that case. It is going to a grand jury in March. You have uh, the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Wills, who uh, is unafraid. She's fierce. And she is looking at this criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, the conspiracy, which then would involve people like Lindsey Graham, would involve people like Rudy Giuliani. So the investigation is all going to swirl around an intentional interference with someone's performance of election duties. It's not just that phone call to the Secretary of State Raffensperger. It is more than that, Um, because what that investigation is going to go back to what the district attorney, uh, the county attorney, wants to say are various phone calls and various communications uh, during the months of November, December, and into January in order to affect those results. That's a case to watch because it's coming up fast. And finally, on on that case... Can't, intent's always interesting in criminal trials. As a criminal defense attorney, uh, you know that a lot better than I do. Is it a possible defense to say, hey, Donald Trump really believed he won the election in Georgia? Would that protect him, or would that be like me telling a policeman in California where nobody stops at a stop sign, uh, I didn't believe that meant a full stop and him giving me the ticket anyway? Well, you have to remember that Donald Trump is often very careful with his use of words. So when you say that you're looking to find a certain number of votes, does that mean that you're looking to create a number of fraudulent votes? Or does it mean that you really haven't searched far enough and there may be, you know, baskets of ballots on the floor? And I think you need to make a thorough search because it's only 11,000 votes. And I can't believe that you have found every vote that there was. There may be ballots there. And we do know, by the way, It is not unusual when there are recounts for people to find uh, a bin of of ballots on the floor um, that haven't been counted. So he's careful. He's always careful when he makes these phone calls. So was he really looking to interfere, as the prosecution will say, or was he simply asking people to do their duty? That's the defense. Ricky Kleeman is a criminal defense lawyer and legal analyst for CBS News. Ricky, thank you so much. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And even though we know so much more about the virus that has now killed half a million Americans, there are still some big questions. Do these variants mean this goes on forever? Well, can I go to the movies, see my friends, tear off this mask? In other words, when is this finally over? Alexis Madrigal writes for The Atlantic as a co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, also the author of Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. And, you know, the news which I give out, is just driving us all crazy. The case and death numbers are dropping, but now we have these dangerous variants. Summer might be great. Next winter, maybe not. And people are wondering how we'll know when this thing ends, or does it end? Yeah, and I, this was a question that was on my mind, too. You know, there were 
things that people say privately, things people say publicly. There are a lot of, there's just a lot of mixed signals right now. So what I decided to do was just to ask uh, a variety of experts, you know, what's a threshold? When can we say, okay, this is over for everyone? And what did they tell you? Oh, well, they, you know, they had some different takes on perhaps, you know, we should look at the number of people who are vaccinated, that we should get cases below a certain threshold, say 5,000 or 2,000 a day in the United States, which is a really tiny number given that we've had tens of thousands for months and months. Um, but the, the most common thing that they said, the simple rule of thumb for knowing when this is over, at least for public health folks, is under 100 deaths per day, which roughly approximates um, the, the burden of uh, flu, uh, flu deaths um, in, a, in a standard year. So that number, just to put it in context, uh, we haven't seen that number since the beginning of the pandemic, 100 deaths a day. In fact, we've never seen a number under 470 at COVID Tracking Project. And oftentimes in recent weeks, we've seen many thousands uh, of deaths per day, even you know, accounting for smoothing out reporting backlogs and other things that happen. So we're really quite far away from there. On the other hand, it is a threshold that it seems like it might be possible to reach um, if we're able to continue rolling out vaccines with the sort of seasonal wind at our back, most viruses do are seasonal, and it appears that um, COVID is as well. 100 deaths a day, you know, it sounds like a country that's won a big war but has accepted repeated and daily terrorist attacks. So we're dealing with something where we think this isn't going away. There will always be death. It just won't be so huge in number. The easiest, kind of simplest interpretation of... Uh, of beating COVID, which is, you know, what the Biden administration has repeatedly referenced, would be that there's no transmission left that, you know, like New Zealand or some place like that, or Vietnam, we've more or less stopped the transmission uh, of the virus within our borders. People don't really think that's very realistic in the United States. Um, people, uh, most public health officials kind of never have. Um, it's not even something that we aim for, in, in part because of failures at the CDC that let us get blindsided in March. Um, and since then, it really hasn't been possible to eliminate the, the transmission we never have in the United States. And so I think the real question has become, given that the trade-offs are so intense and life is so difficult for many people because of their businesses or their jobs and schools um, being closed, there's just this question of, well, what, what's an acceptable burden for people? You know, And I think that's a it's been so much worse than um, than flu, than any recent infectious disease in the United States, that it's been very difficult to, to figure out how to make that trade-off. And I think that's why people have kind of come around to the idea of sort of a flu test. I mean, most people behave normally during influenza season um, and can see that as being a, a realistic way of, of declaring the end. So we're talking about controlling the virus rather than eliminating it. You know, one of the things that's still an unknown here is this virus seems to be pretty hardy and it spins off variants like Star Wars spins off spinoffs. So does that mean, especially for certain populations that, you know, older populations, uh, people in nursing homes, people who have had some of the problems that have made them more likely to die, such as obesity, are always going to have to be a little more careful? Or are we looking at a society that's just going to go, look, you know, it's it's an acceptable number of deaths and the heck with it? Well, I think that, you know, the, the vaccines have proven to be remarkably sturdy, particularly even with the variants that we know of at, at this point, protecting against severe illness and, and death. So, 
you know, obviously these variants, these mutations that have occurred through time um, with this virus have introduced some complexity into understanding what's happening with the virus. But by and large, these variants are um, something that it appears that are at least our best vaccines can deal with quite effectively. And based on the data from Johnson & Johnson, a uh, vaccine that should presumably come um, onto the market in the next month or so, um, that it actually seemed to perform quite well against variants as well um, for severe illness and death. And I think, you know, that's why I think a lot of people are targeting that death number, because it seems like we're probably going to have continued transmission um, in the United States for quite some time. But if we could eliminate the severe illness and death and make this into a cold, um, then that would be fine, I think, by most people's standards. I mean, there's still some open questions about the long-term repercussions of having had um, COVID, at least for some percentage of people. But if we could curb severe illness and death, I think that's really what began this emergency. And if that went away, I think that's what would end it. So a large number of the deaths we've had have been in the older population, especially in places where they can spread easily, like nursing homes. And we've concentrated vaccine in most states at those facilities and the over 75 population. And that does seem to be cutting into the fatality numbers by quite a bit. So this is all good news. So it, but it also makes you wonder what, when I'm talking to mom and dad, you know, when I see mom at Mother's Day and things like that, do I say, look, this is always going to be around. So maybe... Some of the things that you've been doing, you know, shopping more online if you've been doing that or, uh, you know, going only to the outside patios at restaurants and not so much indoors and things like that. Or maybe that's like some good things you should keep doing. Yeah, I, I think that that's it's really, you know, there's there's kind of really two parts to the risk here. Right. I mean, there's the virus itself and then there's sort of how much virus is around you. And I think one of the things that seems like it would be a good idea, given what we've seen with being able to reduce flu deaths to almost nothing, um, is that mask wearing and some basic distancing during the wintertime is probably a pretty good idea for people who are quite vulnerable. And I wouldn't be surprised if people who, you know, as, as in many Asian countries, if you know, we started to see uh, mask wearing be slightly more normalized during um, winter flu season or what will be winter flu and COVID season, probably. Um, I think that, you know, in, in times of the year when there's really not a lot of virus circulating, I think people can adjust their risk levels down. And I'm, I'm a real believer that people need to, um, that the, the kind of public health guidance that people will follow um, and can follow consistently as opposed to making it so hard on yourself that you can't keep it up, that you want, you want the kind of evidence, you want the kind of uh, harm reduction that you can actually follow. And so, you know, things like shopping online and eating outdoors, I liked those things before the pandemic. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I'll continue to do that. Um, and, and I think that we can imagine um, some, some longer term changes. And we did, you know, I think it's just worth noting that um, in, in Asia after SARS, there were long-term behavioral changes that that happened in a lot of the societies that were touched by that virus. Alexis Madrigal writes for The Atlantic, is co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, and also the author of Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. I thank you for being with us. I mean, there's some decent optimism in here, and for a year now, we've needed that. <laughs> yeah. I feel, honestly, I feel quite optimistic right now. I really do. And we, I have not felt optimistic about this pandemic very often. 
we need to see what happens over the next couple months, but I, I am looking forward to summer. Thank you for that. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. America has reached a milestone it never wanted to get to. Here's our producer, Paul Woodhull. If you're a fan of the TV game show Jeopardy, you might remember that the answer to Final Jeopardy on Monday, February 22nd, 2021, was this. Just 24 notes, this piece is nicknamed Butterfield's Lullaby for the U.S. Army general who arranged it. It was tragically fitting that Taps, the haunting trumpet refrain we all associate with death, sacrifice, and loss, was the final question the same day the United States reached the dreaded milestone of 500,000 mothers, fathers, daughters, and sons who were lost to the terrible pandemic of COVID-19. Who knows why the human mind begs to quantify? Sometimes, death is abstract. It is that faceless fear haunting our dreams. But on February 22nd, death was a number as hard as a slab in a morgue. But many of the cherished loved ones, the ones of the 500,000, were denied even that cold comfort as body bags were piled in tents and trucks, makeshift morgues that gave no honor to our dead because the numbers were too great. There is no equation that can balance the incalculable suffering of the bereaved. One side of the scale tips too heavy to ever be balanced out. The joyful celebrations that accompanied the release of COVID survivors from the hospital can never drown out the cries of those who grieve. He just kept saying, it's okay. I'll see you soon. It's okay. I love you. That's the last thing he said. To be human is to try to understand, to look at chaos and senselessness and somehow find a logic that reduces randomness to rationality. If we can just somehow add A to B and equal C, then all will be well. It's a fool's errand. The universe cares little for our calculations. The death of the unlucky soul who was 499,999 is just as soul-searing as that of number 500,001. Death tolls have been counted out by taps since Brigadier General David Butterfield arranged the haunting lullaby in 1862 in the middle of the Civil War. As we do our dead, Butterfield's lullaby has been measured. The solemn refrain we commonly call taps is expected to last 59 seconds, less than a minute to count out a life. If we started to play taps today for every man, woman, and child in America who lost their lives to COVID, 
by the time we finished, we would be well into 2022, without ever acknowledging those who died from this day forward. I wish these numbers meant something to the millions of people who will carry the memory of their lost loved ones for whatever days that they have measured out for the rest of their lives. The numbers probably won't. But there are 24 notes that, when we all hear them together, they somehow quantify the magnitude of our sorrow and give us the hope that even though day is done, gone the sun, from the lake, from the hills, from the sky, all is well, safely rest. God is nigh. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.